0: So it's, uh, it's very good to join you this morning. It's a great pleasure. It's always fantastic to join the Mumbai Hematology Group seminars. And uh, everybody in India has been very much in the thoughts of everyone in the UK recently because of obviously the, the news about the coronavirus, but I'm very pleased to hear that things are gradually improving for you. So I'm gonna talk this morning about primary mediastinal lymphoma, which I think has been Uh, one of the success areas of modern medical oncology. Um, And as our chief guest just alluded to, uh, huge strides have been made in the last two decades with the development of more effective combination treatments and particularly, of course, the use of monoclonal antibodies in the treatment of lymphoma. Uh, And this is one of the areas uh, where we have seen that progress. And we have still a lot to do and we have the need to refine treatment, but I think, Uh, as you'll see from the results of the treatment that uh, we've seen in large series recently, that we're well on the way. So to look at the clinical features of this illness, this presents with a rapidly growing mass in the anterior mediastinum, and it frequently presents as an emergency. And the chest X-ray that you can see on the right here and the CT scan on the bottom uh, are examples of a patient from our center who presented, as you can see, with this very large mediastinal mass. Often they're very bulky at the time of presentation. They affect a predominantly younger population, the median age in in early 30s in the UK. Uh, And this is of course the sort of same sort of age distribution as Hodgkin lymphoma. Many of them are teenagers and young adults. Uh, There's a female predominance, about two to one predominance. Uh, And this means that we quite often see people in, in pregnancy as well, which obviously greatly complicates the situation. Because of the localization and because there's a tendency to grow locally initially, they often present with compressive symptoms in the mediastinum, and just under half of them have superior vena cava obstruction at the time when they present and and they present with facial and and arm swelling uh, and engorged veins in the neck. Uh, Also of course, there's the recurrent laryngeal nerve which passes through this area. So many of them will have a hoarse voice. Uh, And in young women, we often see because of the lymphatic obstruction, we see breast swelling and edema. And you can see in the CT scan at the bottom here, which has taken a cut through part of the breast. There's a lot of subcutaneous and, and edema within the anterior chest wall there. And of course, because of the impingement on the airways, they often present with a cough or breathlessness but also sometimes dysphagia and pain in the chest. So many local compressive symptoms. And this often means that they present at an earlier stage than comparable uh, large cell lymphomas. They often invade the local structures, particularly the pleura, the pericardium and the chest wall. And we often see uh, pleural effusions and all the, indeed, pericardial effusions, although the pericardial effusions rarely give rise to cardiac tamponade. It's relatively unusual for them to involve uh, the bone marrow or structures outside the chest at the time of presentation because of this uh, early encroachment into local structures and compressive symptoms. So we don't routinely stage patients with bone marrow biopsy, uh, but we do usually do a PET scan at baseline just to to, uh, give us more information about prognostics. So most cases are stage one or two at the time of presentation. If they do recur, however, they frequently do this at extra nodal sites. And the tropism of this type of lymphoma is not something that we understand well, why it does this, but it frequently will recur in unusual places such as the kidneys, uh, the adrenal glands, the ovaries uh, or the central nervous system. And you can see at the top panel here on this CT scan, uh, bilateral renal involvement by primary mediastinal lymphoma, which has recurred within the kidneys and at the bottom, ovarian involvement as well. And this is an unusual thing for large cell lymphomas to do, but it's particular to this type. Uh, And as we'll see, unfortunately, if, if these patients develop recurrent disease, it's much more difficult to eliminate. The origins of this lymphoma are in the B cells of the thymus, the thymic remnant. Uh, And indeed, we know that thymic B cells can give rise to three different types of malignancy. They can give rise to primary mediastinal lymphoma, which is shown in the little panel on the right there. They can give rise to classical Hodgkin lymphoma, um, and the Reed Sternberg cell is in the panel on the left there, but there's this other entity which is currently called gray zone lymphoma in the middle, which is an intermediate form somewhere between these two different entities, and, and this is probably the most difficult and, and taxing to treat. So there's a spectrum of malignancy arising from the thymic B cells. The way we make the diagnosis is with histology sample, Um, and it's very important that we get adequate material for histology and immunocytochemistry, which people sometimes attempt because of how unwell these patients are, is really not sufficient because of the complexity of differentiating Hodgkin lymphoma from primary metastinal lymphoma from gray zone lymphoma. So a formal biopsy is really important, but of course, many of these patients will present with compromised airway and for them a general anaesthetic to carry out a mediastinoscopy or a formal thoracoscopy is not feasible and and indeed if people have airway compromise it's much better not to because there is a risk that you end up with an intubated intubated patient following a general anaesthetic and, and then you're obliged to treat somebody on the intensive care unit with chemotherapy the outcomes for which are very poor. So very often uh, in our center and in in many others, uh, we get interventional radiology to do a needle core biopsy of the type, which is shown here done under CT guidance into the anterior mediastinal mass, um, either with CT or with ultrasound guidance to visualize the vascular structures. And this is a much safer procedure for these patients who have airway compromise than go to a formal general anesthetic. Normally. In, in lymphoma diagnosis, we try to get a proper excisional biopsy sample, but this is one of the instances where a needle core biopsy, a, a cutting biopsy, is, is something that we do for preference in order to avoid the situation of, as I say, an intubated patient who, who can't come off a ventilator until the mediastinal mass is, is treated. So very important to get a good sample to make the diagnosis. This is the pathology uh, here. Uh, The top panel on the left shows you a histological section with these uh, large B cells looking like centroblasts with lots of abundant uh, pale cytoplasm uh, and areas of fine compartmentalizing sclerosis, much finer sclerosis than you see in uh, nodular sclerosing Hodgkin lymphoma, for example, and, and a more diffuse pattern. They express, as you would expect, the B-cell antigens, CD20, CD79A, but they do not have surface immunoglobulin. Like Hodgkin lymphoma, they they have not got effective immunoglobulin uh, patterns, but they do have evidence, if you sequence the immunoglobulin genes, of somatic hypermutation. We often see expression of CD30, and this is one of the reasons why people are sometimes confused with Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, it's often present and in, in about more than eighty percent of cases, but the staining is not usually as intense as we see on the Reed Sternberg cells of Hodgkin lymphoma. So it's there, but it isn't nearly so intensely expressed. We see CD twenty three. We see variable expression of BCL two protein, but we never pick up the fourteen eighteen translocation of the type that you see in follicular lymphoma. BCL six expression, uh, the the germinal center. Uh, gene expression. It varies, but most cases have it. But we don't often see CD10, the common ALL antigen. It's in a minority of cases. Uh, CD15, and this is an important distinguishing feature from Hodgkin lymphoma, is almost always negative in these cases. And there are a variety of other markers, in particular the MAL gene uh, and protein normally expressed in in the thymus, which are good markers potentially for primary mediastinal lymphoma and a variety of others shown there. So if we compare the characteristics of nodular sclerosing Hodgkin's primary mediastinal lymphoma and mediastinal gray zone lymphoma is set out in the table here. Both Hodgkin's and PMBL have occur more commonly in women than men, whereas the gray zone is is the other way around. Interestingly, superior vena cava obstruction is much more common in primary mediastinal lymphoma than in NS Hodgkin's where even with young young patients with very large mediastinal masses, we rarely see cava obstruction symptoms, whereas in PMBL, that's much more common. Uh, the morphology, as we've already said, is quite different. You have Reed-Sternberg cells as opposed to large, sheets, large cells in uniform sheets. Uh, And and inflammatory cells, obviously the feature of Hodgkin lymphoma, the mixed inflammatory background with T-cells, neosinophils and so forth, which you don't don't expect to see in PMBL. And similarly, as I say, the pattern of sclerosis, and this can be quite difficult on a small sample, is different between the two, Uh, large bands, broad bands of of, uh, fibroblasts in NS Hodgkins, whereas these are much finer and more widely distributed in primary mediastinal lymphoma. But as you can see this is a spectrum and it can be quite challenging to distinguish them. To look in a bit de- more detail at the immunophenotype, the CD45 is not usually, pre- not usually expressed in NS-Hodgkin's where it is It is in the primary metastinal lymphoma. CD30 as we've said is, is expressed in both of them but is generally weaker and on the right hand side here is an immunopanel and you can see firstly in the top panel, the HE of uh, Hodgkin's mediastinal gray zone, PMBL, and, and a conventional diffuse large B cell lymphoma. In the middle row, you can see CD20 staining, very intense on primary mediastinal lymphoma, very sparse um, in nodular sclerosing Hodgkin lymphoma just on, on a few Reed Sternberg cells and CD30 at the bottom You can see that it's expressed in the nodular sclerosis Hodgkin lymphoma in very high levels on the Reed-Sternberg cells. Whereas in the primary mediastinal lymphoma, you can see that the staining is there. And this is a case with relatively good staining of CD30, but it's still at a a less intense level and it's more diffuse. CD20 is not normally present on, on Hodgkin lymphoma itself. Um, And you can see that a variety of other things, such as the transcription factors, BOB1 and OCT2, are seen in PMBL, but not in Hodgkin's. And and the expression of MAL is much more common. So generally speaking, it is something we're able to distinguish with immunohistochemistry and morphology. but, But the gray zone lymphomas make this complicated with this intermediate state where it can sometimes be really quite difficult to determine which of the two you're dealing with. If we look at gene expression profiling, this is data from some years ago done by the um, LMPP group that Andreas Rosendahl published, Um, we can see that uh, the pattern of gene expression in primary mediastinal lymphoma is distinct from that of uh, other types of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And in particular, it shares with Hodgkin lymphoma Uh, activation, particularly of genes in the NF kappa B pathway and a variety of others as well. So there's a degree of overlap they're they're not by no means the same, but there's a much greater degree of overlap with Hodgkin lymphoma in terms of gene expression profiling than there is with uh, other types of diffuse large B cell lymphoma at other sites, or indeed, a diffuse large basal lymphoma, which is, involves the mediastinum. Uh, often the anatomy is quite different. We often see in, in, in other DLBLs that are in, in the mediastinum, posterior mediastinal or subcarinal involvement. And this is where the gene expression profile is more commonly that of other DLBLs. If we look at the genomic level, at the aberrations that we see, there are relatively few that occur at high frequency uh, within primary mediastinal lymphoma, but I just want to pick out two which are highlighted in the in, with the little circle at the bottom there in, in panel D, indicating the relatively increased frequency of abnormalities, firstly in chromosome 2p uh, and secondly in 9p. Uh, and these are often gains of gains of copy number, gains of um, uh, features in those particular cases, and, and uh, we're going to talk a bit more about the genes which are involved in these regions. There are rel- there are a few regions of genomic loss, um, but these tend to be quite widely distributed through the genome, and we don't usually see rearrangements of BCL2 or BCL6, unlike, for example, in in, in other types of diffuse large B cell lymphoma. So, these are, these are some of the recurrent gene alterations that we see in this illness if we look um, using, using um, genomic profiling. Firstly, we see copy number gains in the REL gene, particularly nuclear REL expressed as a protein. Uh, and again, that's part of the NF kappa B pathway. We see gains in PDL1 and PDL2. That's part of the 9P amplicon, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail. And we see gains in JAK2 uh, and JMJD2C, which is a histone modifier as well. We see occasional translocations in CIITA, which is uh, something which controls uh, the transcriptional regulation of HLA class two and may result in loss of um, class two expression in these cases. And we see point mutations in the genes listed here in SOX1, in STAT6, in in tnfaip 3 in MIC and P53. And and the latter two are relatively common, of course, in other types of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And again, a number of these, as you can see, affect the JAK-STAT pathway and the NF-kappa-B pathway. And finally, we see, as as in many types of of lymphoma, promoter hypermethylation in P16, uh, which is again a a regulator of of cell cycle, but that's in a relatively small number of cases. And you can see the frequencies of these occurrences shown on the right-hand side here, and as I've said, the most frequent and the most prevalent uh, are copy number gains in 9P and 2P. So if we think about the pathways that are affected by these abnormalities, it, there are two which I think probably are key in the biology of this. Uh, firstly, NF-kappa-B signaling uh, that's shown on the left-hand side and secondly, Jack-Stat signaling on the right-hand side. And we'll talk a little bit more about each of these. Firstly, in the NF-kappa-B pathway, there is evidence, as we've already said, from gene expression profiling of constitutive activation of this pathway. And and there are a number of targets in the pathway which we see being altered at increased frequency in primary mediastinal lymphoma. In particular, we see A20 loss of function mutations. We see uh, copy number gains in REL. Uh, and all of these, uh, together with the uh, amplification at two p sixteen, result in increased activation of this pathway, leading to dysregulation of transcription, obviously, uh, in the nucleus. Um, and and this is often the, we think one of the mechanisms by which this arises. If we look at the Jak Stat pathway, we see copy number gains at the 9p24 locus where these genes are located but also importantly these are adjacent to the PD ligand 1 and 2 genes Uh, and we see high levels of of, of IL13, JAK2, STATs and the STATs 1 and 6 uh, as markers of activation of this pathway and this genomic amplification at 9p24 seems to be a relatively common finding. Uh, We also see uh, mutations within SOX1, which is a suppressor of this pathway. So these are loss of function mutations. And we see some somatic mutations in in about a third of cases in STAT6. So again, this speaks to an activation of this particular signaling pathway. To look in a little bit more detail at the 9P24 amplicon, as I've said, this contains not only the JAK2 gene, but also PDL1 and PDL2. Uh, and these, of course, are recognised as potentially important in in immune dysregulation. They're overexpressed in pre- primary mediastinal lymphoma, uh, and they are the downregulators of activated T cell responses. So there's a suggestion, and this is something from that we see in solid tumour oncology as well, that overexpression of these particular um, genes is one means by which cells can uh, evade immune surveillance. And it, a suggestion that obviously that that's the way in which the B cells of primary mediastinal lymphoma may be evading immune surveillance in the development of this illness. So this is a potentially important target for therapy as, as we'll see later, because of course we now have antibodies which can interfere with the signaling of PD-1 and pdl one and 2 uh, as a means of breaking this immune suppression. So, if you have amplified 9P24, you have two different things. Firstly, you have increased PD1 ligand expression, PDL2 ligand expression. Secondly, you have increased JAK2 expression. And that in its turn feeds, has a positive feedback into PDL1, PDL2 expression. Uh, and this can lead, as we said already, to increased proliferation and transcriptional changes in the B cells at the same time as suppression of T cell recognition and immune evasion. And of course, these lymphomas are developing in a highly immune competent environment surrounded by thymic T cells and all the antigen presentation apparatus. So there needs to be some means of immune escape. And it may well be that uh, increasing pdl one ligand is one means of doing this. And what's shown in red on this slide are the means by which you might consider interrupting this process and 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 potential therapeutic avenues and as we will we'll see later uh, antibodies to pd pd1 pdl1 interaction are a promising idea for this particular illness So returning to the clinical features of primary mediastinal lymphoma now, um, because it presents generally speaking at an early stage, but with bulky disease, the international prognostic index is generally yet less useful as a discriminator of prognosis for these patients. Most patients are young. Most of them, because they have very bulky disease in in the mediastinum, have a raised LDH uh, but most of them, as, as I've already said, present at stage one or two. So there's a kind of aggregation in the relatively low IPI group. Um, and there's a variety of reports suggested about survival and, and lots of different um, suggestions about how well or how badly patients with this illness do. A, a large retrospective series that um, the group at the British Columbia Cancer Agency have published suggests that performance status Age and LDH are very important in determining prognosis. And we can see here the the relative risk that you get from uh, poor performance status from being over the age of 40, which is relatively uncommon, uh, and by having an LDH more than twice normal. Um, But in general terms, it it can be quite difficult to ascribe um, a good prognostic score at the baseline to somebody presenting at a young age, but with a very large mediastinal mass. For this reason, we've we've used CT-PET to evaluate this and we we carried out a large prospective study uh, in the International Extranodal Lymphoma Study Group, the so-called IALSG26 study, um, carried out predominantly in the UK and Italy, um, where we enrolled 125 patients and did baseline PET-CT in in 105 of them in the fortnight before we started treatment, Uh, gave them a full course of uh, rituximab and chemotherapy combination treatment and restaged them with PET at the end. Um, before going on in the great majority of cases to mediastinal radiotherapy. So what would be at the moment a a pretty conventional approach in this group of patients. And we'll talk a bit more about some of the data. But what I just wanted to highlight from this series was some work which the colleagues in nuclear medicine have done looking at how you analyze this very dense mass in the mediastinum which is highly FDG avid in, in pretty much all cases. And one of the things we see is considerable heterogeneity of FDG uptake within these mediastinal masses, which can make it quite difficult. And and indeed, heterogeneity itself is generally a poor prognostic feature. But they they have done some modelling looking at the baseline PET scans. And what you can see here is the delineation of the volume of activity at different percentages of the maximum SUV, Um, 25%, 41% and 50% and these are these are selected and you can see in the diagram on the right there the area of the mediastinal mass which has uptakes at those levels and what you can see is that 25% covers the great majority of the mass within the mediastinum and the reason that this matters is that if you use this cutoff as a as a prognostic feature to see what how that relates to the outcomes in this group of patients This this diagram here, which shows you on the left-hand side uh, the different parameters that we've looked at within the mediastinal mass, and on the right-hand side, the Kaplan-Meier survival curves. And and rather than go through the whole thing, I'd just draw your attention to total lesional glycolysis, which is the um, third row down, showing that if you have a low TLG, and nobody nobody has died within five years of diagnosis, 100% survival, whereas if the the TLG in that group is high, um, the survival goes down to about 80%. And the progression free survival, you can see in the next column along 99% if it's low, only 64% if it's high. So this appears to be a good discriminator in this group of uniformly treated patients, all of whom had rituximab and chemotherapy and had mediastinal radiotherapy. This is a relatively good way of seeing who's likely to do well and who's likely to have the worst prognosis. So total lesional glycolysis is a function of both the extent of the disease, the size of the mass, and also the intensity of uptake of the FDG, And using a cutoff of 25% of the SUV, maximum SUV, gives you a very prognostic score. And, and we'll see that this matters, because I think the selection of initial chemotherapy may well be something that we would want to do based on these kind of criteria. And for comparison in this table, you can see that the presence of bulk is really very uninformative, um, by comparison, it doesn't, doesn't reach any kind of statistical significance. So a very um, FDG avid mass of very large size, and I should add with with significant internal heterogeneity, is something which we recognize as, as being a bad prognosis and potentially in need of a different approach to treatment. So when we come on to the idea of treatment and how to look after these people... Um, a few important points to make. The first thing to point out is that the great majority of people who are cured, and it is the great majority that are cured with, with modern approaches to treatment, this is from the initial therapy. This is one of these illnesses where it's very important to get it right the first time. Uh, and this stands in contrast to Hodgkin lymphoma, where, for example, even if you do get a recurrence, it's it's very possible to, to give salvage treatments and to, and to restore the situation. In primary mediastinal lymphoma, it is much more difficult difficult to get control of the lymphoma again if patients develop recurrent disease. The salvage rates with conventional salvage chemotherapy of the type that we use for non-hodgkin lymphoma are not particularly good and uh, as we'll see later on, Uh, although if you can get a patient into second remission and high-dose therapy as consolidation, we see a reasonable proportion of cures, but the problem is getting them into the second remission. Looking historically across the um, ways in which these illnesses have been treated previously, before we had rituximab, it looked as though dose-dense schedules, the kind of weekly alternating schedules such as MACOP-B and VACOP-B, where there's a telescoping in of the chemotherapy, they seem to do better than chop. Since we introduced rituximab, things have been evened out. uh, And as I'll show you in a moment, the the results with rituximab-based chemotherapy combinations certainly show an improvement. There's an infusional regimen, which uh, you will have probably come across, which was piloted at the National Cancer Institute in the United States called Dose Adjusted R-EPOC. Uh, and this is essentially an infusional regimen where the etoposide, the vincristine and the doxorubicin are given as a continuous 72-hour infusion. Uh, the rituximab is given at the beginning and some cyclophosphamide at the end. And the doses are adjusted upward or downward according to what happens with the nadir blood count. So it's a relatively complicated uh, regimen to administer because you require um, some means of giving a continuous infusion, either a peripheral line or a central venous line. And also you need to do a lot of blood count monitoring in order to adjust the doses up or down according to the depth of the nadir and the levels of the degree of neutropenia and thrombocytopenia that we see. But there are some series that I'll show you from the United States where the results are very good, um, but we don't really have any prospective trial data comparing it directly with with the top type regimens. So this is um, a a data on the addition of rituximab to conventional chemotherapy. We carried out a a study called the um, uh, Madthera International Study some years ago now, um, and this compared essentially chop or CHOEP, which was a regimen being used in, in Germany at the time um, with that, the same regimen, but without rituximab. Um, and within that, there was a subgroup of, of, of patients. These were patients with low international prognostic scores. So there was, they were relatively enriched for primary mediastinal lymphoma. Uh, and we saw 87 patients in this study as a subgroup. Um, And they all had either CHOP or CHOEP, plus or minus rituximab, and the great majority at that time received consolidation radiotherapy to the mediastinum. And what we saw was that the event-free survival in the patients who had a rituximab-containing combination was 78% versus only 52% for those who didn't have the antibody, and the overall survival similarly was improved, although the small number meant that this didn't reach significance. And the panel on the left here shows you, uh, and I've highlighted the the PMBL versus um, uh, with and without rituximab figures, uh, which is the uh, black lines on that curve. And you can see that those that had rituximab had a, a much better event-free survival. And the overall survival looked different, as I say, although the, the numbers were small. Uh, and interestingly, in this case, a few of these patients obviously did did have successful salvage nonetheless a a clear advantage to the addition of rituximab so that's standard of treatment these are the results from the study that I spoke about earlier this is not a randomized study this was a this was a prospective large cohort Uh, and again we 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 treated 125 patients the great majority of whom had uh, rituximab and chemotherapy uh, and the great majority also had consolidation radiotherapy to the mediastinum and you can see that the results in this group were very good. Uh, the overall survival um, shown on the left there was 92% um, at three years of follow-up um, and the progression-free survival was, was 86% uh, and these figures are cut by the um, Doville prognostic score which I'll come to in a moment Uh, of the mediastinum mediastinum at the end of chemotherapy. But the important thing to to note here is the extremely good outcomes in this prospective group. One of the questions we've thought about during the era of rituximab-based chemotherapy is whether increasing the intensity of the treatment itself might be helpful. And we conducted a large study in the UK comparing our CHOP given every 14 days with the same treatment given every 21 days. Um, And within this study, which had a bit over a thousand patients with uh, large B-cell lymphomas, we had a subgroup of 50 primary mediastinal lymphomas, so a relatively small proportion of the total. Um, But we analyzed these separately and 28 of them had had the 21-day regimen and 22 of them had the 14-day regimen. and about half of them had consolidation radiotherapy, well, a bit more than half had consolidation radiotherapy, 21 had no radiotherapy. And the overall progression-free survival was um, similar to what we saw in the previous series, 80% with an overall survival of 84%. Interestingly, there were more progressions in the RCHOP21 arm than we see in the RCHOP14 arm. Uh, And that's shown uh, in the bottom right-hand panel, which is the progression-free survival. Now, the numbers are small, so this didn't reach statistical significance. Um, But it was interesting to us that it looked as though the dose-dense RCHOP was likely to be preferable to the uh, relatively conventional schedule of RCHOP21. Uh, And the, the lymphoma meeting in Lugano, which is happening in June of this year, we'll have a large uh, amount of data comparing different chemotherapy regimens. And again, um, without wishing to to preempt the results, it looks as though dose intense chemotherapy, even in the rituximab era, may well be preferable to conventional RCHOP21. So that's just an interesting point. These are the published results with dose adjusted EPOC. This was a retrospective series from the National Cancer Institute where they treated um, just over 50 patients, but it was over a very long period of time. It took a long time um, for them to see a sufficient number of referrals with this illness to to accumulate this data. Um, And a much smaller proportion of these patients had consolidation radiotherapy to the mediastinum. So this group took the view that if you had an adequate response to standard systemic treatment, that radiotherapy might be omitted. And the results as we can see here are extremely good with a very high overall survival and an event-free survival in this very selected group of, of 93%. So this is obviously quite provocative. And again, taken together with the, the analysis I've just showed you of our CHOP14, suggests that dose tense chemotherapy in this illness may be preferable. And that's obviously in contrast to the majority of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, where we, we don't think it makes any difference. This was a retrospective data collection from another group that was um, uh, presented in 2018. This was a rather larger group, 118 patients. And again, a good event-free survival, not as good as we saw with the um, selected group from the NCI series. Um, Again, only a small proportion of them had radiotherapy. but it was it was difficult to increase beyond dose level 4 of the of the dose adjustment of ecop epoc and and 12% of them uh, remained at the baseline level uh, and one point to pull out and which i hadn't mentioned up until now is that uh, thromboembolic events are a, a big feature of the um, presentation and the course of treatment for these patients uh, and and we saw in this particular series nearly a third of patients who had uh, venous thromboembolism, and this might either be venous obstruction in the chest, or in many cases pulmonary emboli. And one of the points to make is that as you start treatment, it's very important to give um, prophylaxis. We usually use something like enoxaparin. Um, because you quite often have clots proximal to the uh, obstruction within the large veins of the chest. Uh, And if you don't anticoagulate these patients or give prophylactic anticoagulants at least, there's a high proportion that get um, pulmonary emboli. So very important to anticoagulate patients who have um, this illness with, with significant venous obstruction in the chest. This was a large large randomized trial carried out in the United States, the CLGB Alliance study 50303. Uh, And this was done to prospectively compare the outcomes of conventional RCHOP and dose-adjusted R epoch. This was in the whole of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and there were very few patients with primary mediastinal lymphoma in this trial. So, unfortunately, this is not going to give us the answer to what is the optimal first line chemotherapy for primary mediastinal lymphoma. The overall finding was that the results in terms of progression free and overall survival were essentially the same in this very, very large prospective randomised study, suggesting that for most um, large B-cell lymphomas, there's no, there's nothing to choose between them in terms of therapeutics. But again, uh, important to emphasise, we think that primary mediastinal lymphoma may be a bit different in terms of its sensitivity to dose dense chemotherapy. What this trial does give us is a, is a good handle on the likely toxicity of these different regimens. I've already said that dose-adjusted EPOC is much more complex to administer because it requires a, an intravenous line for infusional treatment, uh, and it also requires a lot of monitoring of the blood counts during the nadir. And what we see here, is, as you might expect, is also um, by virtue of the fact that the doses are being increased to, to uh, until a level where you see significant neutropenia, uh, I've highlighted that the amount of febrile neutropenia seen in this study was about double uh, in the dose-adjusted epoch arm what it was in the R-CHOP arm. Uh, As indeed was neuropathy, despite the infusional regimen and despite using vincristine uh, spread out over 72 hours, they nonetheless saw a significantly higher amount of peripheral neuropathy in patients given dose-adjusted R-Epoch than given R-CHOP. there are arguments both ways about what would be the uh, best initial chemotherapy for primary mediastinal lymphoma. I've already shown you that we, get, we see very good results with our CHOP um, plus mediastinal radiotherapy, but we also see excellent results with dose-adjusted EPOCH. but clearly this is at the expense of a bit more short-term toxicity, particularly with, with blood indices. So the next question, and uh, beyond what is the best first-line chemotherapy, is um, what can we understand about the use of uh, FDG PET as an outcome measure for these patients? And this matters, of course, because we would like to try and use a good response assessment, a, a, a sophisticated response assessment as a means of deciding whether or not people need radiotherapy to the residual mass, which you almost always see in the mediastinum. And here are two patients who are who are post-treatment of primary mediastinal lymphoma, uh, both of them with residual soft tissue abnormalities visible in the anterior mediastinum at the completion of chemotherapy. Uh, But what you can see from the FTG images is that the one at the top has some residual signal within this anterior mediastinal mass, residual area of abnormal uptake, whereas the patient at the bottom essentially has a negative scan with no sign of increased uptake within the rather larger residual soft tissue mass. Um, And the question is, does this matter in terms of the prognosis and in terms of predicting what will happen subsequently? to go back to, to um, the, the background of this, the Deauville five-point score is something which we increasingly use and is increasingly accepted as a means of uh, reading out the response to therapy using FTG-PET. And the scale is shown here. And essentially, you can use different cutoffs offs on, on this five-point scale for what you'd call negative, and when we started out, we we used the cutoff of the uh, mediastinal blood pool as the marker, so that those with a score of one or two, where uptake was less than or equal to that in the mediastinal blood pool, was taken as negative, and we called three, four, and five positive. With time, we've we've gradually shifted that, um, and provided the uptake is less than or equal to that of the liver, which is a score of three now. Um, we're starting to think that we could call those negative. And and indeed, there is some evidence, and I'll show you that in a moment, that actually even those with a score of four, where it's mildly greater than that of the liver, may even have a good prognosis. What we do know is that those with markedly increased uptake at the end of conventional therapy have a much less good prognosis. So this is looking at the response in the series that I talked about earlier, the IALSG study, where we looked at Um, The post-chemotherapy interpretation of PET scans, this was done centrally, uh, and we managed to see 115 patients' uh, studies. And what you can see here is the distribution of the number of patients. And and as I say, we started using a cutoff of a Dougal score of 2. Um, as the negative, so less than or equal to that of the mediastinal blood pool. And what you can see is that there's a pretty even distribution of about half of patients that were called negative by these criteria and half that were called positive. And so this is a much uh, lower PET negativity rate than we see with other types of large B-cell lymphoma at the end of our CHOP chemotherapy. therapy the negative predictive value in the negative group was very good. The positive predictive value in the positive group was not so good. And, and of those patients, the 61 that were, remained positive at the end of c- chemotherapy, we only saw 11 recurrences. And you can see the distribution of, the, of, of those in the bottom row here, um, four of them in the Doville score four group, six of them in the Doville score five group, and none at all in the in the Group that had a score of three, where the uptake in the in the hottest area was less than or equal to that of the liver, so we looked at the um, analysis by cutting off at the at the liver threshold, and this of course increases the positive predictive value um, because it selects much better for the patients, the eleven patients who would. Were- going to develop a recurrence. This was now 11 out of 34. Uh, Whereas the negative predictive value of course is is no worse and is slightly better because we've included a group of patients with a Doville score of three, uh, none of whom had a recurrence. So it looks as though this might be the sensible cutoff to take for PET positivity at the end of uh, conventional treatment. Uh, And this is comparing the two different cutoff levels um, using either a, a threshold of two or a threshold of three, uh, the mediastinum or the liver, and you can see that the progression-free survival distinction is better if you take a cutoff uh, and if you call all the Deauville score threes negative in this particular series. So so that was certainly interesting and helpful to us in designing a prospective trial that that I'll come to. One of the retrospective series which has examined whether or not using radiotherapy in the mediastinum is necessary in those whose PET scan has gone negative is is again a series from the British Columbia Cancer Centre which was presented at the last Lugano meeting two years ago. Uh, And so what they've done here is they've looked retrospectively at two different eras of treatment in the BCC Cancer Centre where patients are all treated to, to a uniform practice. So between 2001 and 2005, shown on the left-hand side here, patients got rituximab plus chemotherapy and in the majority that was our CHOP uh, and then routinely had consolidation radiotherapy to the mediastinum at a dose of 30 to 40 gray Uh, And this is what you call the the radiotherapy era. there were 50 patients in this group, um, 39 of whom received radiotherapy. And there were a variety of reasons uh, why the other 11 patients didn't get radiotherapy. Um, Some people uh, actually had PET scans, which they arranged for themselves at the time before they were routinely available uh, and said because they were negative, they didn't want to have radiotherapy. And there were a few others who had early progression or who had other reasons. Since 2005, this group has been routinely using PET scanning at the end of treatment to determine whether or not to give radiotherapy. Uh, And of those 109 patients seen since um, 2005, those who were PET negative were simply uh, managed expectantly, and those who were called PET positive, using the criteria I've just described, had radiotherapy. And in fact, this turned out to be only around a third of patients, 28% of patients, who got radiotherapy. And in comparing the, the outcomes for these different eras of treatment, and of course the length of follow-up is different because the, the radiotherapy era patients were treated longer ago than the, than the PET era patients. Nonetheless, we can see that there, there is no apparent difference in terms of um, time to progression or or indeed overall survival according to the previous era of treatment or, or the more modern PET-directed treatment. And, and this group have taken this as a rationale for omitting radiotherapy in those patients who are PET negative Doville score of one to three at the end of our chemotherapy. Uh, And this resulted in a a two-thirds less patients having radiotherapy to the mediastinum, which of course is desirable in this in in this young population, many of whom are female, in order to avoid both radiotherapy to the breasts uh, with the risk of consequent breast cancer, and also radiotherapy to a large area of the mediastinum, which involves the aortic valve and coronary vessels, (coughs) with the result of accelerated coronary and aortic valve disease in later life. So this is attractive, but it's retrospective. Data uh, and it's not randomised. So it's it's possible that there are a variety of biases which might have um, skewed the results. If we look at the outcomes by the PET score in this group of patients, uh, we can see the uh, outcomes by time to progression on the left and overall survival in this group shown here. And the ones that were called PET negative, as I say, the Deauville score of one to three, uh, that's the blue line, do extremely well. Uh, as indeed do those with a double score of four. Uh, So these are the patients with a slightly increased uptake over the liver. The ones who do very badly, and, and, and that's very clear, are the patients who have markedly increased uptake compared to the level that we see in the liver. And even with combination chemotherapy and in almost all cases radiotherapy as well, these have a relatively poor prognosis. One of the difficulties of interpreting FTG PET following treatment is that there is a significant false positive rate. Uh, And this is particularly the case with something like dose-adjusted epoch. And this is a illustration of a case from um, Kieran Dunleavy's series at the National Cancer Institute, where they found at the end of initial treatment with dose-adjusted epoch, there was this mass within the mediastinum which had a, a persistent abnormal uptake, SUV of six as shown here, but they elected not to give radiotherapy and simply to repeat the PET scan six weeks later. And what they found was that this progressively regressed. So there is undoubtedly a proportion of cases in whom you see a mild increased uptake. And these are probably the Deauville score for patients who do relatively well mildly increased uptake within the mediastinum at the site of the previous bulky mass, which if managed expectantly, may well regress spontaneously without necessarily needing to resort to radiotherapy. This is obviously quite an uncomfortable thing to do to say to a patient, um, we can see there's a residual abnormality where you've previously had the lymphoma. uh, And in this illness, which as I've already said, can be quite difficult to salvage effectively, we're going to manage this expectantly without radiotherapy. Nonetheless, this, this is something which has been done by some people. Ooh, i having trouble moving my slide. <laughs> Uh, this is this is the data which was published in Hematologica by this group um, looking at the end of treatment PET after dose adjusted epoch. Uh, in this relatively small series, you can see that there were um, about 80 patients analyzed in this, but certainly those with the Doville score of one to four who were managed expectantly did relatively well. And, and, What's shown on the right-hand side here, um, and if you concentrate on the far right panel, these are the Deauville scores of patients who didn't progress and the top and those who did at the bottom. And you can see that the great majority of treatment failures were in patients who had a Deauville score of five at the end, but there were even a few patients who had a Deauville score of five after-dose adjusted epoch in the top panel who didn't develop progressive disease. So I I think this talks to the fact that it can be quite difficult to know for certain whether a positive PET scan at the end of treatment necessarily requires further intervention such as radiotherapy. So in thinking about whether consolidation radiotherapy is still needed, um, there are arguments in both directions. Firstly, we can see that um, in the old series, there's a high rate of conversion from partial to complete response on conventional imaging such as CT scans and and some of the older papers published um, firstly by the original IELSG retrospective study uh, and secondly, in the larger Italian series, showed that patients who had a partial response after chemotherapy, generally not containing rituximab, uh, improved the degree of response after radiotherapy. But as I've just highlighted, this advantage has not been seen in all the series. The retrospective data from the British Columbia Cancer Agency suggests that if you can use PET effectively to determine who has radiotherapy, that may be a, 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 an effective approach. And the dose adjusted epoch series didn't use radiotherapy. And again, the results there are, are extremely good. And there's another series which I haven't described um, from Greece where again, they used a PET directed approach, only giving radiotherapy to those with a Dobell score of four or five. And again, the results looked very good for those who were PET negative. And as I've already said, there are concerns about second malignancy um, Young women risk of breast cancer, people who smoke, there's the risk of lung cancer because you involve a significant amount of lung tissue in the radiotherapy field and accelerated coronary and aortic valve disease. So there are good reasons to want to avoid radiotherapy in the mediastinum if we possibly can. And this is the study which we have just completed accrual to for the International Extranodal Lymphoma Study Group, ILSG37. Uh, And this was uh, an attempt to randomize a PET-directed approach. So people diagnosed with primary mediastinal lymphoma were registered and had a baseline PET-CT scan. And they had rituximab-based chemotherapy. And this was relatively permissive. Um, So patients could have RCHOP either on the 14-day or the 21-day schedule. Or they could have one of the weekly alternating schedules such as VACOP or MACOP-B or they could have dose-adjusted REPOC, um, And indeed, we also, um, to accommodate French groups uh, permitted RACBPB or R-MEGACHOP, um, very small numbers of patients received those. And, and we'll see, as I already mentioned, the first data from this series, looking at the outcomes of chemotherapy at the Lugano meeting uh, in a month or so's time. So at the end of the rituximab and chemotherapy treatment, we restaged patients with a subsequent PET CT scan, and this was centrally reviewed. Where it was PET-CT positive, that's to say Doville score of four or five, um, patients were uh, they could go on to have radiotherapy or they could not have radiotherapy according to the choice of the investigator. The principal question was to look at what to do with the PET-negative patients. And those who are PET-negative were randomised to either have or not have mediastinal radiotherapy. Um, And we uh, aimed for a hazard ratio of 1.77 for progression-free survival. Uh, And what I will say is I I haven't got any data to show you from this study. What I will say is that the accrual is complete, but it has taken a very long time to see enough events in the PET negative group to be able to make a reliable analysis. And and that may tell you something about how well these PET negative patients may do um, with a conservative approach. So this will be a very important study for determining once and for all whether PET negative patients can avoid uh, radiotherapy. As I've said, the the important consideration with this illness is that if you don't succeed with first-line treatment, it can be very difficult to rescue. Um, this is a retrospective series um, published by the Canadian Group, looking at um, salvage chemotherapy for patients with either primary mediastinal or other types of uh, large B-cell lymphoma. And what they saw, and this is, this is certainly our experience uh, routinely in our centre, is that it is very difficult to salvage these patients. Only a quarter of patients with primary mediastinal lymphoma were salvageable with conventional chemotherapy if they as shown on the left-hand graph here, uh, with a very poor, poor um, progression-free survival curve following recurrence, which was which was worse than that of um, other types of large B cell lymphoma. If they did get to autologous transplant in the, that minority of cases where that was possible, then the outcomes were okay. But the difficulty, of course, was, is getting to that point. And, and this is a minority of patients who actually get to high-dose therapy. Uh, and even there, we see only around half of them are, are, remain in progression-free. Uh, and this is, this is an, another series, um, again, published from the uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, looking at um, the outcomes of second line treatment and high-dose therapy. And again, this is only those patients who got to transplant, showing that the progression-free survival and the overall survival is around 50% if, if you actually get to um, transplantation. And the intention to treat numbers are shown on the left-hand side there. So this is a difficult illness to salvage. And if we can possibly avoid recurrence, we do. Again, to emphasize, this is not like Hodgkin lymphoma, where you may have another chance to, to cure patients. If you don't cure them the first time around, it's extremely difficult. So in thinking about the sorts of salvage treatment we can use, obviously the the expression of CD30, and there's a a, a slide on the panel here um, showing CD30 expression in a case of primary mediastinal lymphoma, you might have thought that something like brentuximab-vidotin, the CD30-targeting antibody drug conjugate would be an effective uh, approach to treatment. Um, But actually in a a series published by um, the Italian group, Pierluigi Zindani, Looking at patients with recurrent primary mediastinal lymphoma, the responses were, were low. Only two out of 15 patients responded to Brentuximab, Vodotin, uh, and the trial was stopped early because of the lack of efficacy. And I think the difficulty here is that, um, Brentuximab vedotin obviously is a is a single cytotoxic agent. It's a it's a vinca alkaloid type chemotherapy treatment, and giving this to patients whose disease has progressed following a vinca alkaloid containing chemotherapy such as our chop was always rather unlikely to succeed, despite the improved targeting with with anti CD30 antibody. So this was disappointing, but. Conversely, I think the, the data with anti-PD1 antibodies is much more encouraging. So again, this was another, uh, this was a company study sponsored by Bristol Myers, and uh, not Bristol Myers, Merck rather, looking at pembrolizumab And again, a small number of patients uh, treated with pembrolizumab for recurrent disease after conventional chemotherapy. And we can see that um, the response rate in the waterfall plot shown on the right hand side here was rather more encouraging with some complete responses and some quite durable responses. And some of these patients went on to to have transplants as consolidation of this. So I I think this is a potentially attractive idea and and this speaks to um, PD-L1 as a potential target as a result of the, the amplification of this locus Um, that this may be a way to deliver antibody treatment and potentially combining pembrolizumab with salvage chemotherapy may be a more attractive way to treat recurrent primary mediastinal lymphoma. So although this is quite tentative and early days, this does give us some indication as as to how we might improve the salvage rates. But it also brings me back to the point that we really, really want to try and cure these patients at the first time out. The other technology obviously, which is around at the moment is CAR T cell technology and and particularly the anti-CD19 CAR T cells. And this is the data that was presented a couple of years ago from the big um, company sponsored study, uh, looking at the fact that if you have a complete response um, to CAR T, the the outcomes are very good. Uh, And the bottom right-hand panel here indicates the uh, results of treatment in patients with primary mediastinal lymphoma Um, they were lumped together with those with transformed follicular lymphoma. So it's slightly difficult to interpret the the data and the numbers are relatively small. But what we can see is that the response rate, complete and overall and, and partial response rate um, for the group containing PMBL is relatively good, so this is now a licensed indication for CAR T cells, anti-CD19 CAR T cells, which we use in the UK. So for those patients with recurrent primary mediastinal lymphoma, what we try to do is, is contain the disease as best we can with some conventional salvage treatment, and then aim for CAR T cells at the earliest opportunity um, if we can if we can produce sufficient response because this feels like their their best option at the moment. So I'll I'll draw it to a close there and and try and summarize some of the the information that we have from the studies that have been done. Um, This is a a type of large B-cell lymphoma with a particular biology as, as we've seen in a particular type of pathology. The important point to make is that in general terms, because this presents in younger people at a relatively early stage, despite the bulk within the mediastinal, the prognosis is is good and and more than 90% of patients can expect to be cured with rituximab-based chemotherapy regimens of one sort or another. Whether or not you need radiotherapy to the mediastinum at the completion of chemotherapy remains controversial. We've seen very good results in series where we've used radiotherapy routinely. Uh, And there are a few series where um, not using radiotherapy for those with a negative PET scan at the end has excellent results. And and I think the results of this, this ongoing randomized trial are going to be very important for informing how we treat patients in the future and re-emphasize again, the risk of venous thromboembolism in these patients and and the need to give prophylactic anticoagulation at the initiation of chemotherapy in order to avoid unnecessary morbidity. I think PET-CT has proven itself very useful in thinking about prognosis at the baseline. And, And to return to my point about the total lesional glycolysis, I think those patients with a high TLG at baseline are perhaps the ones in whom you would want to select a more complicated regimen, such as a dose-adjusted epoch, whereas those with a lower TLG, whose, whose prognosis we know is very good, could probably be treated with conventional R-CHOP. And, and because of the small amounts of data suggesting that dose intensity is important, we routinely use R-CHOP14 for these patients in our centre. Uh, and I think the things to watch for the future are the emerging roles of the anti-PD1 antibodies, the checkpoint-blocking antibodies, and of course CAR T-cells, for recurrent disease. So I, I will leave it there and, and very happy to um, discuss this and, and to take any questions. Thank you very much indeed.